Thanks, Justin. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much. Father, as we open our heart to you, um, we ask you to bless us. May the Spirit of God shower upon us like this rain is showering on the outside, softening the ground, softening the heart, so that seeds for the future may be received. We look at David and part two of this horrendous, unthinkable rebellion that was perpetrated by Absalom. Help us to see how that was resolved today. Do your incredible work in our midst for your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Now, we're talking about the rebellion, part two. You remember if you were here last week that David, we left him leaving Jerusalem. He left Jerusalem in order to spare the city, to spare the citizens. The citizens of Jerusalem did not turn on David. As David left the city and went out through the Kidron Valley, um, up to the Mount of Olives and into the wilderness, the people of the city lined the streets and wept and honored David and his men as they left. There was this huge army, the army of Israel, if you can believe it, moving in from the other direction, led by Absalom. And David and his small army, men that were loyal to him, were leaving town in order to spare the city. When Absalom got into town, he followed some very heinous advice that had been given to him by David's chief counselor, who had uh, become a turncoat, Ahithophel. And with that action, the children... Uh, of Israel that lived in Jerusalem understood there would never be any hope of reconciliation between David and his son Absalom, not in, not in uh, military or political terms at least. Now, let me, let me explain something. There's a principle that maybe with yesterday being the rivalry weekend, maybe you, you can really connect with this. Uh, Today's sports culture, and I'm not, uh, Pastor, please don't preach against sports. No, I'm not, I'm not preaching against sports. You just got to have the right teams. That's the problem. <laughs> but um, uh, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Being a sports fan, sports is a cruel mistress. Don't let it rule your life. I'll just put it that way. But I tell you what. I, I noticed, and I guess it's just the old guy in me. I really have a distaste for trash talking, for the displays in the end zone, for all of this. I mean, I, I, I just, I hate it. A lot of people, they look for the highlights of that. I hate it. And I'll tell you why I hate it. I grew up in a time, um, and yes, there was television then. Um, I grew up in a time where if you played sports, uh, at just about any level, even, even the pro leagues. When I learned to love sports, if you showed off, if you trash talked, if you had these kind of displays that you have today, now except the Lambeau Leap, that's of God. Other than that, if you had these kind of displays today, you would be seated, you'd be put on the bench. I mean, that, that, was, not, that was not part of the culture of sports. Um, it was the day before, I mean, it was the days when American League most valuable player Yogi Berra had to work at a maitre d' in a restaurant in the offseason to make ends meet. It wasn't this amazing world of finance that you have today. And I, I don't begrudge that. I'm just saying it's a different world. And if you acted like anything other than a gentleman, you generally got seated. And um, there was a man who inherited a basketball team and he realized that uh, it was the 60s, the early 60s, and it was uh, a time of, uh, of unrest, not only legitimate unrest like the civil rights movement, but also just crazy unrest. And all the foundations seemed to be being shaken. He said, notice something about his team. Whenever somebody didn't complete a play, he said, I noticed uh, early on that whether it was overtly or quietly, they were pointing the finger at somebody and saying, you know, you're forgetting your role. You're forgetting your job. You, you should have passed. You should have done that. 
And that was so distasteful that this coach said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't seat, I can't bench everybody for doing this. And after trying to correct them, he said, he said, gentlemen, he said, you ought to be out of this by now. He said, you should have outgrown this before you got to junior high school, but you're still pointing fingers at people that you think are responsible for a broken play on the basketball court. He said, I'm going to tell you that we don't have to have a basketball program here. So I'm going to tell you there is no more finger pointing allowed, period, except for one kind of finger pointing. He said, when you score two points or you make a great defensive play, you're allowed to point your finger then and then only, but it's not at yourself and it's not a finger of blame at someone else. He said, you, as soon as you make that shot, as soon as you make that play, you start running to the other end of the court and you find the man that just passed the ball to you. You find the man that just set the pick that enabled you to drive. You find the person that made you successful and get your name cheered for. You find them and you point to them. And in the 1960s, this man named John Wooden coached a half dozen national championships in college basketball. And every one of his teams were known for a new kind of pointing. No matter what you did great, you found the person that made it possible and you pointed to them. It changed sportsmanship. Now it didn't last long, lasted about a decade. Wooden retired and the culture changed and now we're into trash talking. But there was a day when somebody made a decision, I'm not going to focus on what messed me up, I'm going to focus on who lifted me up and that's what that team was known for besides their championship. That was the days of guys like Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was Lou Alcindor in those days. I mean, phenomenal basketball teams that were built on this. You did it. You did it. I might have shot, but you made it possible. And I think that that's one of the things when God says he's building godly generations, I think that's one of the things that he's trying to instill in us. He's trying to get us to the point where we learn that um, we will forever be in bondage if we decide to focus on reasons we can't or reasons we didn't. I want to tell you, I'd been here maybe two years, three years. I don't remember. We'd have to check the books to see. I think I'd been here about two years. I was in Brown Chapel. It was the old chapel. It was before it was remodeled and redone. It was the, the old church. And I had been here, like I said, two, maybe three years. We had a leak. We would be in trouble on a day like this because we had a leak that was so bad. It began by just water uh, dripping. Within a few weeks, it was water running down the wall, you know, just a, a steady stream. Not too bad, but steady stream. We had to block that aisle off so people wouldn't walk um, and get their shoes wet, you know. Um, and then probably after about six weeks or so, it got so bad that people thought we had an indoor fountain. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Justin, were you back by then? I can't remember. It was like an indoor fountain. I'm not exaggerating. It was, it was, you could hear it running down the wall. It was splashing. And a whole fourth of the sanctuary we had to block off for several weeks. You say, well, why didn't you fix it? Well, those things cost money. We didn't have any. And we ended up needing to put together uh, and appeal the people of God for about $120,000 for that project. And you came through beautifully. But we didn't know how it was going to happen. And I can take you over to the spot. I'll be preaching second service over there. I'll go show them where I think it's our second banner on that wall, it was, it was just where I was when I was praying. And I, I said, uh, God, you've got to help us. I said, I don't know how to fix this. We don't have the money to fix this. We, we, don't, we can get a loan, but we've had, then we'd have to pay the loan back. You're going to have to help us. And God spoke to me 
on that Sunday or that day I was in there praying. And he said, as surely as I moved my people out of Egypt to the promised land, I'm going to move this congregation. And I remember saying, Lord, we can't afford another building. We can't afford to locate. And God spoke to me. I remember this because I put it in my journal. He said, I'm not moving you to a new location. I'm moving you to a new level. Well, that's the hokiest thing. Uh, you know, uh, every church in the 90s was going to a new level. Every church in the 90s was in transition. They used the word transition to explain the mess they were in. You know, we're going to a new level and we're in transition. But that's what God was telling me. And I remember I was crying. I remember beating my hands against the wall out of frustration. My, my uh wrists were bruised and my hands were, were uh, 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 cut in a couple of places. I wasn't trying to be dramatic. I just remember beating on the wall. I said, how do we do this? And I said this, I said, you told us you'd move us like you moved the children of Israel. I said, Lord, they were slaves. How, and I, I, and, and I yelled this out. There's nobody in there. I said, how do slaves become an army? How do slaves become sons of the king? And I waited for a great spiritual formula. And God said, I can tell you one way that will keep you from moving. And that is focusing on your slavery. Who put you there? The unfortunate circumstances that found you there. He said, son, before I do anything in the church, you've got to understand nobody ever moves to another level. Nobody ever moves out of slavery by focusing on their slavery or focusing on their slave masters. The wrongness, the offender, the hurt. He said, you've got to have a breakthrough. And when you have a breakthrough, you've got to lead the church in breakthrough. Now you say, well, pastor, that just, that just kind of, uh, that just is an offensive, that's a racially insensitive example to use slavery. And you know, some of our families were, were here in slavery. But guys, that's not the point. You're missing the whole point. Although I think that application could be made in any situation. We've got to, if we really want to rise out of slavery, if we really want to rise out of what has kept us in bondage and kept us from advancing in the Lord, we've got to decide that we're going to change our focus. We can't undo what's been done. We can't hate them enough to make a difference. We can't accept being just paralyzed where we are because of what someone has done to us. We've got to say there's another level, there's another way, and this is what God wants to do. You know, whenever, whenever the prophet Nathan corrected David, there's a phrase in there that is still just amazing to me. God said, David, I did this for you. 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 There's about four specific things. And then God says this that just blows me away. He said, and if that had not been enough, I would have given you anything. I would have given you more, I think is the way the text reads. I would have given you more. Loved ones, we are a people who generally tend to get paralyzed at the level of offense that is the most egregious to us, not understanding that we serve a God, whatever our holdup is, we serve a God who's saying, if this is not enough, I can give you more. I can give you more. He said, make some good decisions, and that doesn't shut off uh, these other things. What did he say? Oh, I need another hour today. I feel it coming, but I won't do it to you. He says... He said to Solomon, ask whatever you will. And Solomon said, give me wisdom to, um, uh, to lead these people. And God said this to Solomon. He said, because you could have asked for all of this, but you chose a higher level. He said, I will give you the higher level, but I will also give you everything you didn't ask for. Loved ones, I don't know if I'm saying this clearly enough, but we as a church are at a place we have never been before. We are at a place where we can make good decisions. 
We are at a place where we can decide to move forward or we can stay where we are blaming this, that, and the other, blaming the president, blaming the past president, blaming our upbringing, blaming the culture, blaming the economy, blaming Google and whoever else you want to blame. Or you can say, I'm moving up. I'm going to follow God. Now, there are things that I need. There are things that are burdensome to me. There are things that need to be dealt with. God says, I can handle that. But don't let that be your focus. It's what Jesus taught where he said, there is sufficient evil for every day, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, I'm not here to preach that God's got this marvelous breakthrough and, and the windows of heaven are going to open and the storehouses of heaven are just going to be poured out on you. I'm here telling you that there is going to be a breakout, but it's going to be a breakout where we change the way we think. And I'm not talking about confession. It's a breakout where we change the attitude that we possess. It's a breakout where we understand what Paul said in Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing. And you know what's inherent in that promise in Romans 8? Paul's saying, you can be as close to God as you want to be. See, there, you know, I, I know it wouldn't happen in first service. must be second service. But somebody might say, well, I'd be closer to God if we had a better pastor. I'd be closer to God if Glenn would sing hymns. I'd be closer to God if this, that, or the other. But do you know what Romans 8 really teaches? I can be just as close to God as I want to be. Now, it's okay to say I'm not as close to God as I ought to be. It's okay to say I'm not as close to God as I'm going to be. But don't ever say I'm not as close to God as I want to be. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it, God's just keeping me at arm's length. No, 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 no. You are as close to God as you want to be. You walk in the victory that you want to. It's a matter of which level you want to, to pursue and which things you want to hold on to. So this is David coming back. You know what my tendency would be if I underwent the rebellion David underwent? After everything had been restored, I would have been tempted to say, you know, like Richard Nixon when he got defeated for governor in 1962 after getting defeated for president in 1960. He goes to the press and he said, well, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. D David could have said, well, you won't have me to take, kick around anymore. Yeah, you're going to have to find somebody else to kill your giants. Now you're going to have to find somebody else to win your battles. Now I'm taking back my copyright, all my songs out of the hymnal. You're going to have to resort to somebody else to have meaningful worship. If this is the way you treat someone that's a man after God's own heart, then I'm just going to the wilderness. I got enough friends out there. I'm just going to take my banjo and play till my heart's content till I drop dead and go to heaven. And then you'll know how bad you've got it. See, that's the reason a lot of us don't have victories. God knows if we had victory, it would destroy us. Our attitude would be horrible. Again, not first service. It's other services, other churches. But what you find that I want to focus on today is David coming back. The nation turned on him, not Jerusalem and not the whole nation, but a significant portion of the nation turned on him. Those that he had depended on to be closer than his next breath, people like Ahithophel turned on him. And I still can't imagine, I cannot imagine the magnitude of being betrayed by your own son. But David showed us how to walk back to a place of blessing. Loved ones, some of you have not had a good life. Some of you have been done wrong. You've been done by people of other faiths. You've been done wrong by people of other races. You've been done wrong by family members that turned their back on you. The circumstances of life have just bowled you over. And probably 80% or more of us in here have a reason to pout and get mad with God and say, well, I love you and I accept you as Lord, but if this is the, if this is the best I'm going to get treated, 
then we'll just, we'll just sing these songs, Glenn Picks, till I go to heaven. But David shows us that when your world falls apart, whether it's somebody else's fault or your fault, there's a way to re-enter graciously and to recover, begin to reign. If we, it, probably all of us, if we spent the time focusing on people that have done us wrong, there's enough people that have done us wrong, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that it would rob us of anything God wants to do the rest of our life. So what do I do? Well, then God move for me. Make them tell me they're sorry. I'll tell you this, most of the people who have done you wrong have no idea they did you wrong. That's what's irritating about it, is you know they did wrong, God knows they did wrong, and they're just fat, dumb, and happy. They don't have any idea. Others of you, you say, no, it was calculated, Pastor. I've, I've labored with this for years. I know. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not telling you to just shake it off as though it never happened. And forgiveness never implies that you treat the person as though it never happened. So, you know, if, if someone, you know, if someone, you know, attacks your child, you're not required to invite them to dinner the next night. You're, you, you forgive, but you still understand that changes the dynamic of living. Loved ones, hurt is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. But when God begins to keep his promise in Joel chapter 2, he said, I will restore what the enemy has devoured. I will restore what the locust has eaten. When God begins restoration, this is the question. How will you walk back into that place that God is restoring? Psalm 3, David wrote, while on the run from Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. That's exactly what was happening. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people. Now there's a couple of other texts. One was a reminder of what Absalom was like. But let's pick up the story from where we left off in 2 Samuel 18. And this is what the scripture says. David went out. He sent out his troops, a third under Joab's command, a third under Abishai's uh, uh, command, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. Now, Ittai was the one that was following David. And David said, Ittai, go, go on home. You, you didn't sign up for this. This is not your fight. Um, you, you came to serve me and you walked into a rebellion. This is going to cost you and your men your lives. Go back home. And Ittai said, I'm not going anywhere. I came to serve you. And it doesn't matter if a rebellion is going on or if it's peaceful times. Me and my men are here to serve. So David put a third of his men under the command of Ittai. And the king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Now, his men were saying exactly what Ahithophel was telling Absalom to do. Ahithophel says, don't go after the other men. Just go for David. That way you can win the army back and you can win the people back. The only thing you do is pursue David. They'll flee from him. They'll leave him high and dry. And the men said, that's exactly what they'll try to do. They'll try to kill you. And if you die, David, then it's as bad as 10,000 of us dying. And, and David, basically what they were saying, it's, it's better for the whole army to be wiped out than for you to die. 
It would be better for you to give us support from the city. And what that meant is not David go back in Jerusalem, but he was, they were saying, David, you create a network. You, you, you've already sent spies. You direct us, but you direct us from behind walls. Now the principal characters are David, Absalom, Ahithophel, Joab, Shemai, Zeba, we, we met them last week, Ittai, Hushai, Zadok and his son Ahimaaz and Abiathar and his son Jonathan. Now Zadok and Abiathar were priests and Ahimaaz and Jonathan were their sons and they were used as spies as were the priests as was Hushai. If you weren't here last week, Hushai was David's number two counselor and as David leaves town, as David leaves town, he tells um, uh, these men to, 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 to stay behind and he says, keep us informed of, of what's uh, going on and what's happening. The story in scripture covers 2 Samuel 16 to 19 and of course Psalm 3. The central truth, another simple one, God will bring to completion the good work which he began in you. You say, Pastor, I know that. I learned that when I was a little boy. But do you know as you get older and as you face more and more life, there, that, that promise is one of the hardest ones to latch onto and believe. What God began in you, he will bring to completion. Now in chapters 16 and 17, under Think It Over, we see the acts of Absalom. Upon Ahithophel's counsel, Absalom's first act was to place a tent in view of the public sleep with David's concubines. Um, now, it's interesting that when David begins to establish his reign in Jerusalem, the first thing he does is to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city. That's the difference between the two men. David's bringing the presence of God. Ahithophel is bringing acts of rebellion. There were loyalists to David, we talked about this, who wept when the king left the city. But by Absalom doing this desecration, they realized there was no hope of reconciliation. There was no hope of reconciliation between Absalom and David. David's thinking, if I can get him subdued, you know, it'll be like when he was, you know, eight years old throwing a temper tantrum. I can subdue him, I can give him a whipping, and he'll settle down. But the people realized when Absalom did this horrific deed, which was done upon the advice of Ahithophel, they realized there's no turning back. Now, what we find out, this is interesting. David prayed when he left. He said, Lord, bring to nothing the counsel of Ahithophel. And David said, Lord, he, he's going to be the voice that Absalom will lean to. He's always been right. You remember we read last week that Ahithophel's counsel was considered the very word of God. He said, when this happens, bring confusion and the Bible says that the Lord was going to answer David's prayer and bring confusion to the advice of Ahithophel because God had determined to bring destruction to the house of Absalom. Whenever you and I are facing battles, there are some things that defy logic. There are some things that defy the odds, but you've got to trust that God is working because he has determined that he's going to set something right. In fact, uh, Hushai, they, uh, uh, Ahithophel said, Saul, I mean, uh, excuse me, um, the boy, Absalom. <laughs> he said, Absalom, he said, don't worry about the armies. You have sufficient numbers to overwhelm them. Find David. Let the men live. Be merciful to the men. Find David. All you've got to do is nail David down. And when you kill David, everybody will turn to you. And that was good advice. That's the way it would normally work. That's what David men expected Ahithophel to do. But Hushai said, well, he said, you better wait a minute. He said, you're not talking about going and killing some king that's new and inexperienced on the throne. We're talking about your David uh, your, your daddy David, we're talking about the greatest warrior that's been seen in Israel since the days of Joshua. He said, think about it, Absalom. Your, ma your dad may be 60 years old, but he's been a warrior all his life and he is like a, he's like a lion waiting in hiding. 
<coughs> he said he may not go out and, and uh, on the campaigns like he used to, but he has forgotten more about warfare than your army knows no, 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 no. I tell you what's going on right now. David is hidden in a cave somewhere and he's commanding his armies all around him. No, if you want to get to David, those men will fight to the death for David. You've got to go and kill the army first and then get to David. And that's exactly the plan of action <laughs> that David's men proposed their, their defensive posture. And the strangest of all things happened, something weird, something that would have never happened in 20 years previously, now suddenly happens. The advice of Hushai seemed better than the advice of Ahithophel. That's what Absalom said. What was behind that? The Bible explains it. God caused Absalom to think that because God had made up his mind, I'm going to destroy Absalom. And I'm going to destroy his armies, okay? So those, and, and what happened is Absalom in a rage sends his army. You gotta understand now, he's sending his army out into the countryside where David fought for a decade and longer. Absalom's army knows little about it. They're going to a place that is unsuited for Absalom's army, or I should say Absalom's army is unsuited for the wilderness, but David's in his stronghold. Now, in chapter 16 and 17, we see the reaction of David. David fled Jerusalem in order to prevent the destruction of the city. He, he fled the city in order to get to the territory he knew, he knew best. He fled Jerusalem in order to have time to regroup and make plans for a counter-offensive. He's using the sons of the priests as spies in the field. He then moves to the forest to prepare for battle. He divided his army into three groups. Um, at the insistence of his generals, David does not lead from the front lines, but he does give one specific order. And, and I just wanna say this, every time I read the story of David, I don't always understand him, but I wanna tell you, Joab was a phenomenal man. He was, I mean, he had his moments, he needed to be slapped, but I'm not big enough to do it. And but Joab was a, he was, he was perhaps the most underrated warrior in all of Israel's history. And he gives an order to Joab and the other generals, do not kill my son Absalom. It, it goes to all of David's men. Do not kill my son Absalom. <coughs> so Joab and the other generals lure Absalom's large cumbersome army into the forests of Ephraim. Now, here's where we have to make some assumptions. Are you guys still with me? Rain's not putting you to sleep, is it? If, it, if you are going to sleep, tell me it's the rain, not me. I hope I'm not putting you to sleep. Joab knew David's heart was irreparably divided over this affair with Absalom. You start thinking about it. You're in a fight for your life with your son. My instinct is let him live. Let him live. I, I'm not saying it because I'm noble. That's the heart of a father. I'm not going to go in a fight. I'm not trying to whip my son. And in fact, David would bear that out when Absalom would die. At the end of the battle, David said, oh, 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 that I had died instead of Absalom. Joab knows a father's heart for his child. David loved Absalom and could never believe what his son had become. We don't know that David ever believed what his son had become until well after the affair was over. 2 Samuel 18, David's army marches out of the city to fight Israel. The battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops, now remember Israel, they're under Absalom now. Israel's troops were routed by David's men and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. The army had long left their days of fighting in the wilderness. That generation was gone and the ones that remained served David. And so what happens is they got into a campaign that was in territory they were ill prepared for. And <clears throat> these one scholar puts it this way. These were men trained to fight in cities 
These were men trained to fight from door to door, and now they're lured into the forest, and it is full of traps and treacheries and dangerous places where your next step could be your last one. David's men know those places. Absalom's men do not. And the scripture says that more men died from accidents or from missteps in the forest than died from the sword. <clears throat> Chapter 18 is the death of Absalom. <clears throat> David's men, you know, now, now, now let, me, let me back up and tell you this. Absalom... His, his vanity for his hair is what did him in. Now, I grew up in the 60s, and every preacher worth his salt in the Assemblies of God in the 60s preached that you boys better, be, better get a haircut, you're going to end up like Absalom. I mean, I heard that just about every church I ever went to. Long hair's just the beginning of trouble, boys. Well, and there was more truth to that than we realized, probably. Absalom was riding along. And it, maybe it was night, maybe he was looking around, we don't know what happened, but he came up on a low branch and his hair that was flying in the wind literally gets caught in the branch. His animal keeps going and Absalom the great, the man who had no flaw from the top of his head to the soles of his feet is now hanging by his hair. He can't pull himself up and if he could, he can't get loose. He is absolutely lassoed into submission. He's swinging back and forth. And it was easy for the men of David to kill him. But you remember what happened to the last two guys that killed the king? They said, I'm not going to touch him. The, the man that killed Saul, David had him killed. The, the man that killed Saul's son in rebellion, David had him killed. They rode back and said, we know where he is. Joab says, why didn't you kill him? And the king said not to. And they were smart. They were very smart. I mean, David's two for two killing people that killed the king. But Joab knew that Absalom's death was necessary. He knew that Absalom would never be at peace with David. I, I say he knew that. That's Joab's thinking. I, I don't know what was right. I don't know what was right. As a father, this is so layered. I don't know what was right. But I know what happened. Joab looked at it. He said, it's going to devastate David to let him live. But I know David. I know David. And David will not kill his son. He's going to live to, to start another rebellion. No, this man needs to die. And uh, Joab in verse 14 says, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand. Some translations say arrows, but it's probably uh, javelins plunged them into Absalom, Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the oak tree. And uh, uh, ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet. The troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes." And then chapter 19, David returns to Jerusalem after the, 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 the grief of what's happened to my son. And loved ones, let me just take a minute, that a moment, an event that deserves 20 minutes. Let me just give it two. David keeps waiting for news that his son is alive. Nobody will tell him that his son is dead till finally the men come back victorious and he says, is my son alive? And a well-meaning man says, may all of the enemies of the king be as that man is. David is so grief-stricken that it nearly destroyed the morale of his men. David is so broken. I mean, he is absolutely so broken that his men become ashamed that they have won the battle. And Joab shows his strength. At that moment, Joab could have become king. But Joab says, you are humiliating these men that have risked everything for you. You ever know what it's like to give someone a gift and the gift is never acknowledged? Or to pay a compliment and the compliment's never acknowledged? 
Well, these men have just, I don't know if you understand, they didn't just go out and win a battle. They had to haul their families out of the city. When they were going to fight for David, they had to send his, their wives and their children off into a, a hidden place, wondering if they would ever see them again. The price they paid for David's victory was phenomenal, and all David is doing is crying for his son. Now, we understand that, but Joab gets in David's face, and he said, well, let's just go out and surrender now. These men have fought. Some of them have died for you. They've risked their own children for you. And Joab uses strong language. He said, I swear to God that if you don't stand up in this window and make an acclamation to these men and thank them for what they've done, I declare before God that they will say we should have gone with Absalom and they will rebel on you themselves. <coughs> David realized that is right. So he goes and he affirms the men he thanks them for their service and their loyalty to David rises that you know you'd, you'd be surprised how many people around you just need a good pat on the back and with that moment of thank you of that moment of this I'm back on the throne because of you David wins all the hearts back to himself even those that were against him now what are the Christian life lessons let's let's hurry through these and then I'll let you go because I want to pray for you. Here's number one. Please understand this, loved ones. Unforgiveness breeds in us the very behavior we despise. When you choose to walk in unforgiveness, for good or bad, you become like the object of your focus. Absalom became the very thing he hated, a rapist. Tenfold as guilty as his brother Amnon was. You see, loved ones, that's why you hear people say, well, I don't choose women very well, or I don't choose men very well. That's why they will understand, that's why they will realize what happened in a bad marriage, and then they'll turn around and marry someone exactly like the person they just divorced. Or a young lady will hate her alcoholic father and you'd think she would choose a man that was nothing like her alcoholic father. And she may not marry an alcoholic, but she'll marry someone with the same basic issues of her alcoholic father. Why does that happen? Why do we keep making the same mistakes over and over again? Because when God delivers you, when God gives you a second chance, if you don't walk in forgiveness, you are focusing on that person and you become just like them, even though the label may be different. That's amazing preaching, but... <laughs> the second life lesson I want you to understand and I just want to refer to this because we talked about it last week. Hearts of the fathers need to return to their children. Um, God is about to start building upon the stones of repentance that we have been laying down, pulling down all these years. And he is about to begin to restore the idea of the fathers and sons being, fathers and children being restored, mothers and children being restored. That's part of God's greatest plan for the last days. We've got to understand that it's impossible to, to move from a dysfunctional family to a functional family without dealing with your children and getting restoration. Here's number three. When God begins to restore these things to your life, old friends should be honored and held in esteem. When David goes back into the city, Barzillai, Shobi, and Mekir, all three of them, David's old friends, welcome him back into the city. They were the same friends that tried to help him and did help him when he left the city. Listen to me, loved ones. You may find yourself in a situation where friends have been absent during your battle, but welcome them back now. Stop carrying the grudge. Get past the disappointment. They may have withdrawn from you in the battle. You may have withdrawn from them in the battle. God may have orchestrated the whole event. Sometimes God wants us to stand alone. 
But when God begins to bring key people, key relationships, when God begins to bring your roots and your heritage back into your life, welcome it, honor it, and hold it in self-esteem. Because you'll find that those friends have something you need and you have something they need. Get past the disappointment. You say, well, it wasn't right. I'll tell you, when I was in seminary, I had been a youth pastor and money was very scarce. Money was very scarce. Um, There were a couple of people that sent me money every month to help me. If it hadn't been for them and the Lord's graciousness and, and and a good job at Sears, I don't know how I would have made it. But there was one pastor that I'd worked for. I'd been his youth pastor for about a year. I went to seminary and um, <clears throat> he, he told me, he said, I know money's going to be tight, but he said, uh, if you ever need to come home, he said, I know you don't have money to come home. If you ever need to come home, write me and I'll schedule you to preach. We'll receive an offering. He said, always come home when you need to come home. I'll, be, I'll see to it that you never flounder. Well, wrote him a letter and he didn't write me back. He didn't call me, but I'd already scheduled the time off at work. It was a semester break. I went home and he was right. I didn't have money to go home and I got there and didn't have money to come back. I had to basically ask for my daddy's gas card to cover my expenses. You know, for those of you that are young, gas card's a credit card that you just used at a gas station, you know, like, (laughs) and, uh, I went to church that Sunday and I noticed he was a little miffed with me. And I thought, well, I knew you were miffed. You didn't answer my letter. And we talked a little bit. He was cold and distant to me. I was cold and distant to him. And it was not a good Sunday. And I thought, well, this is when I was supposed to be preaching like you asked me to, but you, 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 you blew it. Well, it was probably about six weeks later. I got a letter from him and inside the letter, was the letter I mailed to him. And across the cover of the letter were these words, recovered from the crash of Eastern Airlines flight so-and-so. When I went to town that week for that break, you could see the Eastern Airlines plane sitting out there in the bay. Um, It it had been there for, for weeks. What I had no idea of knowing is that my letter was in a mailbag on that plane. What he had no way of knowing is that I had written him just like he asked me to do, but the, the, the letter was in, the letter was in the bay for close to six weeks. He got it. He said, uh, I think we both learned the lesson. He said, uh, this is why I didn't ask you to preach. And he said, I just got the letter and I wanted to send it to you and, uh, and apologize and hope we can start over. Well, we did. It was, I mean, when we realized what happened, both of us realized how silly we were. But loved ones, you may never have the benefit of a recovered letter. You may never have the benefit of an explanation. But I guarantee you, in most instances, there's something going on you and I don't know about. And we need to welcome friends back into our life. Here's number four. Old enemies must be shown mercy or at least given the benefit of the doubt. You've got to make peace with your past. That includes welcoming friends. That includes dealing with those that have done you wrong. Shemai was the one throwing rocks and dirt at David. And David's men said, let me just kill him, get us over with. And David said, no, let him live. God may be speaking to me through him. He came back into town and Shemai's on his face. I'm so sorry, king, I shouldn't have said those things. And David had all kinds of, any option he wanted was available to him. But he chose to forgive. He chose to forgive. Ziba, you remember the man that came and said, Mephibosheth said, now's my chance to recover everything. And he stayed behind Ziba's there welcoming the king back, but so is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, King, what Ziba told you is not right. He left me. You know I can't walk. You know I can't saddle a donkey. You know I can't get on an animal to come to you. Ziba betrayed me and he lied about me. And you've given him all the land. And here I am. You don't even have to give me the land back. Just know that I have not betrayed you. And you say, well, who was telling the truth? The Bible doesn't tell us. 
We don't know who told the truth. We don't know if Ziba was the, was the liar or if Mephibosheth was the liar. We have no idea. You say, well, why is David new? No, he didn't. David didn't knew. No, he said, one of these man, men is a mortal enemy to me. Some of us would have said, well, let's just kill them both and be sure. You know what David said? He said, I don't know. I don't know what's in Ziba's heart. I don't know what's in the heart of Mephibosheth. But I know I need to guard what's in my heart. He said, since I don't know what to do, take the land that I gave to Ziba. Let's put it back on the table, all the land on, back on the table, and just divide it among yourselves. One of you is lying, but I'm not going to spend my celebration of coming home figuring out who the liar is. One of you is a, is a traitor, but I'm not going to spend the rest of my days trying to figure out who did me wrong. Just split the land. It's between you two. I'm out of this. And here's the last thing. Sometimes our grief and wounds must be dealt with privately, not in the presence of others. David's grief over Absalom is totally understandable. But the way he lamented over Absalom marginalized his other children. He had other children that had faced danger. He had deeply hurt the men and their families who had stood by him in his darkest hours. David's lament is totally understandable. I understand and I weep almost every time I read him. Oh, read it. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I wish I had died instead of you. I hear the anguish of a father's heart. But I want to tell you, when God begins to restore, listen to me, when God begins to move you to that next level, there may be things in your heart that are still painful, that are still unspeakably delicate, but you've got to learn to stop dealing with your grief in front of everybody else. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a friend or a confidant, a husband or wife that you can share with. Please hear me. But what some of us have done is for years we've paraded our grief. Every time we come to the altar, it's the same prayer request. Every time something breaks down in our life, it's the same pointing finger. I'm not saying what happened is not noteworthy, but I'm saying God says I will help you and I will restore and it may be that moving to the next level is saying that I will take it to myself and I will let God deal with me and I'm not going to make this my trademark. Need to trade trademarks, if you will. Right now and in the months to come, you are making a decision concerning whether you're going to be part of the solution or part of the problem. He was not a godly king. In fact, he was a wicked king from the story. We don't even know which king it was. But when the city of Samaria, the northern kingdom, was under siege, people had no food to eat. They had resorted to cannibalism. Two women that had planned on and, and had eaten their children saw the king walking on the wall. And they looked down at him and began to mock him saying, you're the king. You have everything you need. There's no problem in your life. We're all going to hell in a handbasket while the mighty king walks around in his royal robe and his crown and something earth shattering happens. The king looks up to those women and he takes his robe in his hands and he rips his robe off and underneath his robe he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. And loved ones, I want to tell you that teaches us two things. Number one, whoever you're sitting next to may be smiling, a big cheesy smile today. But you don't know what's going on in the deep places of their heart. And number two, that king understood if you're going to be kingly, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to rule and reign, you can't process every one of your griefs and complaints in front of everyone else. You have to take them to the Lord. Now, it's time for us to go. In fact, it's past time to go, which is normal. 
but we are really working on it. We really are. It's just not very hard. But uh, <laughs> loved ones, I, I, I mean it. I believe this. I told, you it, I told you this time last year that 2019 was going to be a tough year. It's going to be a continuation of 2018 that was a tough year. And I, I've, I've never had a, a, a year prediction with more affirmation than, boy, you said it was going to be a rough year. It's been a rough year. But I want to tell you something. God is set. The word is building. God is set to build even on the ruin of our lives in 2020. But hear me. Hear me. It's not going to be just an open heaven where God gives you everything you want. God is willing to take what you have torn down and on those stones rebuild the things of your life. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you, it's not going to work if you try to rebuild on your bitterness. It's not going to work if you want to rebuild on pointing the finger. I want to remind you one more time what John Wooden said at UCLA. He said, there's only one way you're going to be allowed to point fingers on this team. And instead of saying it's their fault, you're going to say it's because of them that we succeeded. It's up to you. It's up to you. God is going to begin to build with those who in humility will let him lift them to the next level. Would you stand with me? Father, in the strong name of Jesus, thank you for getting David back to the throne. In the strong name of Jesus, thank you for giving us a promise of building. Lord, I'm, I'm not talking down to anyone. I know what it's like to walk in bitterness. I know what it's like to walk in unforgiveness. I know what it's like to ask you to build on something but give you nothing to build upon. But Father, in humility, we, you've been calling us for years to repentance and many of us have been, been walking in repentance and what appeared to just be rubble, what appeared to just be parts of our life broken and shattered are now the building stones upon which you're placing a new foundation, a new building, a new blessing, a new level. I am a slave no longer. I am broken no longer. I am a victim no longer. But Lord, it's only because of your grace. Today I choose to let go of the offender. I choose to let go of the institution. I choose to let go of the accusation. Father, I know what happened, but I'm coming to the place today where I realize you are greater than what happened to me. You are greater than my past. Your future is greater than my past. Your anointing is greater than my debilitation. Father, we're coming back into the city and we're going to welcome our friends. We're coming back into the city. We're going to give forgiveness to our enemies. Lord, we're coming back into the city. We're going to celebrate those who made the victory possible and the, the, the remnants of our pain, the remnants of our grief and our hurt. Lord, we need to deal with those things, but now instead of it being our badge, we're going to deal with it between us and you. People will no longer identify us by our hurts. They will identify us by the great grace that you have shown. Here's the word of the Lord. Naomi said, I went out full, but I'm coming back in empty. But the scripture says that God's restoration was so profound that Naomi was no longer known for her loss, but she was known for the restoration God gave her through Ruth through Boaz, through that grandchild that she bounced on her knee. She said, I was full, I'm empty, but God has a new place for me and it was a place of abundance. God's giving you the same invitation. 
He's giving you the same invitation where that bitterness will be marked by love, where that hatred will be marked by love, where that emptiness will be marked by fullness. But it's up to you. It's really your call. It's your call. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Here's what I want us to do. The altar ministry team that usually comes and stands here, I'm going to ask them to just move among you and pray in just a moment. Justin, that won't mess up anything we've got going. Okay. For those of you, you don't have to confess anything. You don't have to say anything. But for those of you that are here, you just say, Pastor, I understand. I want to walk in the next level. I, I, I want to let go of the pain. I want to let go of, of what has held me back. I, I want my identity to change. I, I'm, I'm not going to lament what I've lost. And I'm not going to lament that I've been empty, but I'm going to celebrate that the door is open and I'm coming home. I'm coming home in fullness. The king, the queen are being restored to the throne. I want to just ask you to come and just pour out your heart to him in the altar area. Pastor Glenn's going to lead in an atmosphere of worship. But if you want this restoration, God is putting it in process now. Just come, just come and call upon the Lord and let him fill your life up, okay? If you're here and you don't know Jesus, please get with me or Justin or one of the ministry teams. They'll have a badge on and tell them you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. They would love to pray with you. God bless you. Thank you for being here. The altar area is open. Please come and wait in his presence.